Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Canada has a labor force problem. Many of us aren't matched to our jobs, and with artificial intelligence on the rise and the continued march of automation, the problem may get worse. It's already worse here than elsewhere. For every 10 workers in an OECD country with a skills mismatch, Canada has 13. For perspective on why this is, how we addressed the issue successfully in the past, and what can be done in the future, I turn to Parisa Mahoubi, the Senior Policy Analyst of the C.D. Howe Institute's Human Capital Policy Council, and the author of the report, Bad Fits, The Causes, Extent, and Costs of Job Skills Mismatch in Canada. And we also spoke to Miana Pleska, an Associate Professor in the Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Guelph. Parisa started us off by explaining why a skills mismatch doesn't necessarily mean an education mismatch. Basically, when uh, workers' skills are more or less advanced than the skills required to perform their jobs. But on the other hand, an educational mismatch is the gap between educational attainment for workers and the type, uh, basically the typical uh, educational requirement for their jobs. And these two, basically, they are two different concepts, and we need to distinguish uh, distinguish between these two. The reason is that um, traditionally, of course, because uh, there was no direct measure of skills, researchers have uh, used educational attainment as a proxy for individual supply of skills. But uh, uh, the problem is that education alone is not uh, a sufficient measure of skills for uh, different reason that I can discuss with you. Let me just add to that that I'm very happy how Parisa and how the literature is defining now these two measures because in the literature if you look they were defined as a horizontal and vertical mismatch and I could never remember which was which. <laughs> it wasn't intuitive to me okay which one's vertical which one's horizontal why so this is much more clear educational mismatch and skill mismatch tells you right away what you're talking about so you don't need to Write it on your hand or something. To what do you attribute the 300 basis points spread between us and the rest of the Western world? Different factors basically contribute to uh, the, basically the incidence of skills mismatch uh, across the countries and the reason that they are different, of course, labor market characteristics and economic uh, structure within countries like, uh, likely contribute to such uh, cross-country differences and also uh, um, economic characteristics of uh, individuals in the labor market um, plays a um, play important role uh, in defining the uh, size and, and the extent of the skills mismatch. So differences in terms of uh, education, um, education, even the uh, education system and policies that the government use in the labor market, all going to affect the uh, skills mismatch, the size of a skills mismatch across countries. But we can, in fact, close that gap, you think? We can basically disappear a skills mismatch totally. The reason is that, uh, to some extent, basically, a skills mismatch uh, is uh, unavoidable and is temporary at individual level. But the problem is that a wider separate and a persistent mismatching of skills to jobs, uh, it's going to have potentially serious consequences on uh, performance and productivity. And there are ways to reduce a skills mismatch. 
we may not be able to reduce it totally to 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 have zero basically level of skills mismatch and I can imagine, Miana, we're you know, pushing against a, a very big rock here in the form of the rise of artificial intelligence and the continued march of automation as well. Oh, that's a whole different world that we are talking about. And I keep telling students that 50 years from now, we will live in a very different world. And especially in that context, I think a majority of all the skills are going to be mismatched or obsolete. But that brings me back some, to something Parisa said, and I wanted to say, of course, there's a negative connotation because there's some loss of productivity coming from the mismatch. But maybe not all mismatch is bad, right? So maybe if I study for a field of study that has no applicability, but it has some sort of critical thinking transferability, I may be able to learn quickly skills in a new job. And, and that in the context of artificial intelligence, it's even more important because all of the routine jobs are going to be automatized. So are, what are the rest of us going to do when the robots are working? So we should be able to switch careers fast. We should be able to transfer our skills. So I think 50 years from now, as I was saying, transferability will be the buzzword and people who can adapt will have transferable skills. That is true, and I agree with uh, the, uh, Miana. In, uh, but the problem is that the skills mismatch itself, maybe, you know, some people maybe even choose to be mismatched uh, to their job for different reasons. But the problem is that there are some negative uh, um, labor market outcomes associated with the skills mismatch, for example, uh, a negative impact on wages and uh, job satisfactory, uh, satisfaction. So if uh, and if individuals, for especially for example, under skilled uh, workers, if they don't invest in their skills and they don't, as you mentioned, if they don't, uh, if they are not able to adopt the changes to and to learn new skills, the problem would be persistent, and that may cause a problem. When we say skills mismatch, we often associate that with under-skilled workers. But the productivity failings, the, the lack of productivity that comes with hiring an over-skilled worker exists as well. I would have assumed it would be just under-skilled workers who reduce productivity. You point to something very interesting because when I reviewed the literature, I re realized that actually over-skilling is more common than under-skilling problem across the countries, especially you know developed countries that with um, high proportion of uh, population are educated and then um, achieve universities degree they have university degrees so basically many research has focused on um, over skilling rather than under skilling uh, among um, developed countries and um, the job satisfaction and because uh, the wage penalty is mainly associated with overskilling that causes uh, the problem for productivity when individuals they are not satisfied with the job and they are not able to find a job that probably properly match their uh, skills that's that's going to cause the problem the role of newcomers in the labor force is growing, but it's been shown that over time, the skills mismatch between a newcomer and the labor market disappears. How, how long does that take and what's behind that? 
we just know that over time you know as uh, newcomers you know they try to improve their language ability in the labor market and also learn about the dynamic of labor market in the new country because sometimes they come from the countries that there's the environment and the culture is completely different and the way that the and also the there are many other problems they are facing in terms of even uh, credential recognition so it takes time for them and of course it depends on the type you know the, their location in terms of where they obtain their education we publish many papers highlighting uh, the areas that uh, it's going to affect labor market outcomes of uh, immigrants after the arrivals so we just know that over time you know as they spend time uh, in the country and uh, improve their language and also um get familiar with the, the labor market and how it works and the dynamic of that uh, under skilling um, declines and at the end it's going to disappear but how many years is going to take it depends on the you know it's going to be different from one immigrant to another one Parisa is absolutely right. This is the mechanism that's at work uh, when you think about immigrants as new entrants into the Canadian market. But if you think more generally about new entrants and you think about Canadian kids graduating from university and going to the labor market, they might have a similar type of adjustment from a very different channel and different angles. But maybe they went to the wrong and did the wrong major. And then they figure out, oh my goodness, there are no jobs here. So it it takes a while, a lot of job-to-job -job transitions until maybe they hit on, on a job that's a bit better matched with their aspirations, with their everything. And again, as Parisa said, it's very hard to quantify how long, even for cohorts on average, for a variety of reasons. One is we don't really have very good uh, longitudinal data to follow people for a long period of time. You know, Parisa, that, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, when I read your report and I read the word newcomer, my assumption when we talk about newcomers to the labor force is that these would be immigrants. Uh, but as Miana points out, this could just simply be a kid who didn't take the right program in school. The word newcomers in the paper is uh, just related to immigrants because it's uh, the section that I talk about immigrants. I mentioned that, uh, and yes, new immigrants basically in the paper just refers to immigrants. But uh, I should also mention mention about the young individuals graduating from uh, universities or uh, schools and coming to the labor market. Usually, what we see is that although the results from the paper. Um, by age, when we look at uh, young workers, they weren't uh, significantly exper experienced overskilling. But in general, also because education plays very important role here, I should emphasize that young individuals, especially those with university degree, when they enter the labor market, they usually uh, they experience overskilling. You know, they are overskilled for their job because they don't know. You know. They are not familiar with the labor market. They don't know. And also another problem is job descriptions. Job, you know, when individuals in the labor market, basically they signal their skills by their degree. And employers also screen these individuals and offer the job based on their credential. So as time passes and they, they learn about their skills and they learn about the jobs that requires, you know, some jobs, 
uh, they require a specific uh, credentials but also they need a specific skills that uh, they are not taught in, in university or in schools so over time basically their uh, adjustment happen and because of that some skills mismatch um, it always happened, exists, and it's temporary, especially among young individuals entering the labor market. And uh, over time, they adjust, they learn new skills, and they move from one job to another job. And because of that, labor mobility is really important to reduce skills mismatch. Uh, individuals should be able to uh, move from one job to another job easily within even not, in, not necessarily within a region, across the region, uh, labor mobility is really important. Immigrants with medical degrees having to drive a taxi because the mismatch isn't with their skills, it's with the education relationship between Canada and whatever country they came from doesn't recognize their skill set. Is that part of the overskilling issue that we're dealing with when it comes to immigrants? So uh, for sure, there's uh, an element of it to that. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Some occupations that they might have been trained for in their home countries are licensed here. So it's very hard to gain in entry into those occupations. Of course, we all know about the engineers driving cabs in uh, the GTA and things like that, but doctors would be another even more clear example. And we complain that there's a shortage of doctors, yet they're regulating body that doesn't open enough residency positions for all these doctors to be able to transfer their credentials and uh, uh, upgrade them to the Canadian environment. So um, are we losing a lot of potential productivity because of that? I think yes. But on the other hand, I want to mention here Parisa's doctoral thesis where she did excellent, excellent work looking at the children of these cab drivers uh, who have engineering degrees and all these things. Because what Parisa has shown in, in, her, in her PhD thesis is that uh, they do very, very well, children of immigrants. They are more likely to go to university and, uh, than uh, Canadian-born children, and they are successful because their parents are educated, so they transmit to their kids this drive to succeed. You've got to go to school. You've got to focus on what you want to do. You've got to choose a major that's lucrative. So yes, maybe we lose productivity in terms of the mismatch of uh, newly arrived immigrants who cannot find a job for the reasons we discussed in their trained uh, profession but we gain a lot from their kids. And I think that's one major difference that we have with our neighbor to the south, because they don't have any explicit policy into selecting uh, educated immigrants. They're the second generation and uh, it doesn't do anywhere as well as the Canadian second generation immigrant kids do. First of all, we know that immigrants on average, they are more educated than uh, non-immigrants. So through the education, and we know that um, parents' education uh, has important role for individuals' uh, success in terms of educational attainment and also labor market outcomes. So definitely um, immigration is not, uh, as I say, even the paper says that even uh, within the first generation of immigrants, uh, 
underskilling disappears by time spent in Canada. But for immigrants, for those uh, coming to the Canada, and as again, I say they are on average more educated and they are expected to have higher levels of skills. But I also should mention that the skills mismatch measure in the study focuses on only three core cognitive skills, literacy, numeracy, and problem solving. And these skills basically to be able to obtain higher scores on these skills, you need uh, to have a high language um, ability. You know, for immigrants coming to Canada from countries, uh, basically, countries that their first language is different from uh, the first language of Canada, French or English, a language is going to be become a main barrier at the beginning to be able uh, because as i said immigrants they have high education level but not even if they find a job that is related to their level of education uh, because those uh, education those occupation requires higher level of uh, literacy and numeracy skills but Canadian immigrants in Canada, they are not able to obtain those high level of uh, numeracy and uh, literacy skills in the test score because the language is in English or French. We see those uh, under skilling. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean that those uh, immigrants, they don't uh, have uh, other types of skills that we need in the labor market. As we go into a political election cycle where immigrants are expected to be a, a component to the platforms of some of the parties, are we busting the myth of immigrants being a drain on society? Immigrants are often overskilled, and those that are underskilled close that gap soon after coming to the country. I think this is a myth that keeps getting busted time and again, for instance. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, we all thought that they come here because of the generosity of uh, the social net, social safety net in Canada. And you look, and they play, they are less likely to collect welfare than natives. They don't have higher unemployment rates. They have higher employment rates. They have a slightly higher rate of being self-employed, which if we think that small businesses are an engine of growth, that's not nothing. And which is good. Exactly. And Parisa, you point out there is a role for both business and governments to play. Uh, considering, again, as I mentioned, we are entering this election cycle now, what, from a government perspective, do you see needs to be done to help reduce the skills mismatch? To reduce a skills mismatch, it's not only also related to, you know, the focus shouldn't be only on immigrants, it should apply to all individuals, even uh, older uh, workers, as uh, in Canada's also population is aging. So this is very important for the government to pay, uh, to governments to pay special attention to this issue. Governments need to promote participation in lifelong learning. Individuals should invest in their uh, learning to be able to adjust quickly to the changes, especially older workers, because as I said, the labor force is aging. Governments can also help reduce both the overskilling and underskilling problems with policies that uh, improves labor market flexibility and ease labor mobility. We talk about uh, the barriers in the labor market regarding uh, those uh, regulated occupations. Government needs to reduce skills mismatch uh, by uh, easing labor mobility in regulated occupations to reduce skills mismatch within those occupations. Basically, there are labor laws that uh, doesn't, for example, uh, doesn't allow uh, 
labor law that doesn't allow employers to fire for example workers or uh, these type of uh, laws that they are meant to protect workers but basically they're going to work against uh, them in some other ways so for instance we are heavily unionized at the university of guelph and one of the union rules is you cannot hire somebody as a lecturer more than i forget three or six years or something and uh, you have to make them either a permanent offer or let them go and because we are in an environment right now where permanent offers are not being made until we figure out a provincial funding policy for universities what happens is that excellent instructors have to be let go so legislation not legislation uh, some uh, <clears throat> regulations imposed by the union to help them actually end up hurting them so that's one aspect of it so then the other element is is mobility, uh, labor mobility. The, the labor market mobility has been a key factor in ensuring our skills match our jobs and our jobs match our skills. But how do we encourage that when we've built a society that tells us it's important to you know, graduate and find a partner, settle down and buy a house? Those types of things are um, antithetical to the idea that you need to go where the work is. Yes, that is correct. And also we know that when uh, someone uh, find a job and establish in a region, you know, buy a house or something, it's become more difficult to uh, move to another location. But uh, still, housing um, policies that provide uh, better housing or uh, allows um, basically increase the uh, number of houses uh, or uh, places to live available to workers and also reduce the cost of moving from one region to another region is going to help individuals to find the job that better match their jobs and also in terms of what businesses can do also businesses can help to reduce help reduce mismatches within their organizations by improving hiring process and also providing relocation assistance and that is going to help individuals to look for jobs that uh, fit better with their skills so the idea that while you're in a large organization you may not be best suited for this particular branch office that maybe somewhere else in the country your skills would be better put to best use and so let's ensure that the company is willing to help uproot you and move you to the other side of the country. Yes, and also another way also businesses can help is to find innovative ways to use workers' skills, even if the no relocation is necessarily just within that uh, office, maybe just uh, finding, uh, you know, to identify the workers' skills, how they can use it. It's another way that uh, businesses can help to reduce skills mismatch within their uh, organizations. This is also an interesting question for sociologists because I'm an immigrant and what uh, I find interesting about Canada is that people have a very strong location preference. So for instance, when uh, the oil sands in Alberta were booming, a lot of Atlantic Canada workers were commuting from Atlantic Canada to Alberta, flying back and forth. So they, there's a really strong preference for 
the region where you want to live, it's maybe related to family, maybe related to congestion preferences. To, but I found that really interesting. And for sure, that's not the case in the US. They are, Americans are much more likely to pack up and move coast to coast without any hesitation. Not so much in Canada. To what do you attribute that? Well, why do you think that is? I, that, that's, I don't know. That's why I thought the sociologists may know. <laughs> I really think is uh, preferences. I was born in uh, Newfoundland. I don't want to leave Newfoundland. This is where my roots are, where my family, where my friends. I don't want to live in a big city. I'm happy where I am. I don't need the pollution, the congestion. I... But Americans just have a different point of view when it comes to uprooting themselves. Absolutely. Parisa, do you agree? Uh, I agree for, um, for example, those who are not uh, immigrants, because, uh, um, as I said, preference and also culture. That uh, how uh, it depends on the level of the connectivity with your families and you know the um, um, environment that you grew you were in and also but for immigrants coming from another country they they should be able to move easily within their you know across their any coast to coast to coast but the problem with immigrants in canada also is that they um Again, it's it can be preferences. It can't be preferences. It's probably because of the opportunities. Uh, they're looking for better opportunities. They select um, Toronto, Montreal, and uh, Vancouver as the major destination for uh, settling down. And they already have networks there. Networks and opportunities, as I said, because uh, unfortunately in Canada, um, even in Ontario, we or in Toronto, we see that jobs they are heavily located in a specific region or in a specific uh, area of uh, the province. It's not spread equally across the region. So as we are, as I say, in this election cycle, what do you need to see out of the various parties and the platforms they'll present that will help close the gap in skills mismatch? I'm going to take a little bit of a history detour, although we are running out of time here. Uh, I think about two governments ago, they had an excellent program. Uh, I think it was called Canada Jobs Grant, and it was a partnership between the employer, the government, and the worker themselves. So everybody had to participate because it maybe employers know best which workers would benefit most from training, but there has to be some personal accountability and the government has to participate. I think it wasn't very well implemented because provinces balked at having to pay for it without having any say in it. So politically, it wasn't very palatable. But then also some of the evaluation of that program showed that it might have displaced a little bit existing training opportunities. Oh, if the government is going to pay, I'm not going to do what I was doing. I'm going to let them pay instead. So it's very, very hard to design these uh, programs because incentives are very important. And if I'm going to get a free ride, I'm going to let the government pay for it. Employers, on the other hand, may be less willing to, to invest enough in training because they worry, okay, I'm going to train the worker and then they're going to get poached by the firm across the street I think the solution is if you really train them well pay them a little bit more so that they don't get poached but in such a mobile labor market the way we were discussing before it's a bit um, it's risky it's a risky proposition to, to train workers so it's really it's not a one shoe fits all type of solution and it's very tricky to design training programs that are uh, 
optimal. But I, I think that's the way to go. Partnerships between employers who know their needs and who know their the skills of their workers and uh, maybe better partnerships between universities and uh, employers uh, in terms of these are the type of skills I need from your graduates. Please change your curriculum faster. I can't wait four years until you put new programs through Senate because I need those skills now. So I think a little bit more flexibility from the post-secondary education sector in partnership with employers. I'm totally with Miana on that. And uh, I believe that especially because uh, in today's labor market, we are facing labor shortages and skills shortages. It is responsibility for all, in, you know, all for government, uh, businesses, and also individuals themselves to take responsibility for ensuring uh, they have adequate skills to perform their job. Um, federal government has recently introduced a new job training program called the Canada Training Benefit. What uh, is really important to make sure that the program is going to the design of program is really important and uh, they need to really uh, focus on how they want to uh, work with even provinces because uh, at the fed on, in canada we have uh, programs at, at federal level and also across the provinces they have their own programs and they have to work together so it's really important uh, for governments to be able to work together and also work with the employers and businesses to understand what needs to be done and how to design this program. Exactly, and a bit better awareness of what's out there, because as Parisa was saying, there's a whole lot out there and the left right doesn't know what the right hand does. So we need to have better notions of labor market information. These are the type of training programs available at this level, at the city level, at the uh, provincial level at the federal level let's not duplicate things let's be aware of what exists and make best use of what's already there and then think whether we need anything else on top of that and how to design it miana pleska is an associate professor in the department of economics and finance at the university of guelph parisa mahubi is the senior policy analyst of the cd howe institute's human capital policy council and the author of the report bad fits the causes extent and costs of job skills mismatch in canada Learn more at cdhow.org. Still to come at the CD How, September 24th, from brain drain to brain gain, positioning Toronto as the new center of global tech talent. The Institute will host a roundtable luncheon with Vector Institute Chair Ed Clark, Toronto Regional Board of Trade President and CEO Janet De Silva, and Young Wu, the Chief Executive Officer of Mars Discovery District. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.